Hey, welcome to Textual Healing. This is Mallory Smart. Thanks for joining me for another episode. We have a very special guest today. But before we get into that, I'd like to back up and tell you a little bit about Textual Healing. It's a weekly podcast that interviews writers about music, books, genres that drive them, and almost anything else you could think of. If you want to support the show, follow us on Twitter at PodHealing, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or subscribe on Spotify. All help matters when it comes to a weird show like this, where we try to give writers a unique kind of platform to speak about who they really are and what influences their writing. People like today's guest, John Cotter. John is on the show today to talk about his memoir, Losing Music, from Milkweed Editions. We get into some pretty interesting subjects like how hearing affects perception, subtitles, Stephen King, height differences, and so many other things. It's shockingly a really funny and random episode that sometimes gets into some heavy subjects, which makes it all the more unique. So here's John. I hope you enjoy the show. We have John here. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? I'm a writer. Uh, I'm author of the novel Under the Small Lights and the memoir Losing Music, which is forthcoming from Milkweed Editions on April 11th of 2023. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about Losing Music? So in my 30s, I began to lose my hearing. But it wasn't as simple as that because I also heard these unusual sounds, uh, roaring like jet engines, a clicking, hissing, whistling. It sounded like the noise in my head was what was making voices go away and external noises, world noises. In the first chapter of the book, the ocean disappears, meaning my back is turned toward it and I can't hear it, so it's gone. I also suffered vertigo attacks. The room would spin It's not like dizziness where you're just unsteady, you need something to grab onto. In vertigo attacks, you have to get on all fours, you have to lie down, you grab onto the floor because it seems as though you're falling and you can't stop falling, as though the room is being spun, like you're drunk, but you didn't drink. I traveled the country looking for a cure, looking even for a name for this condition. I don't want to say we struck out. I'll let readers experience that part of the journey with me. But in the end, I decided I had to make my peace with this thing that was happening to me because it was going to keep happening. So I I tried to make myself useful. I tried to escape what Iris Murdoch called the fat, relentless ego. I traveled to a homeless shelter in Colorado near the Kansas border where I worked for a while and I learned about loss from people very intimate with loss. I taught a class of refugees and encountered some harmonies in our story because without being too pretentious about it, I was kind of a refugee for my whole life. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask, I snagged a copy of Under the Small Lights, which was written obviously a while back. I loved it. The prose oh, wow. is, I know it's on Amazon. Fuck Jeff, Jeff Bezos, but... Kudos to you on that book. Very good. The prose is just casually wistful in a way that I don't, you made me think of F. Scott Fitzgerald in the writing. It feels very personal and everything. And I want to know when it comes to this, because this is obviously, you know, it's a memoir. And as you just very heavily discussed, it's a very 
deep and about loss, was it hard for you to get this vulnerable about yourself while writing? Yeah, the, trying to get vulnerable, uh, I guess that's the word people use. It wasn't, it wasn't a word that occurred to me at the time. I didn't think of it that way. I guess I just thought of it as, I thought of it, I guess, as like honesty past the point that I, I already thought I arrived at, meaning I thought I was being as honest as I could be, but then I would sort of be prompted to push past that to get even more honest. Uh, and this was always pretty difficult because I don't even know if I, you know, some of the things I wrote in the book that I articulated in the book, I had not even articulated them to myself in that way. You know, writing the book was a way of discovering what I was thinking, but that shouldn't be too much of a surprise because that's how people talk about memoirs and essays all the time. That's, that's how Montaigne talked about his essays, right? Maybe he was a little, maybe a little different with Montaigne, you know? Because he, he said, he said, well, I'm going to die soon, so I want to leave an example of myself for my friends, an example of what I used to be like. And I, uh, I guess it's a little different for me. I, I had to, um, I, had, I had experienced all these things, and I'd had all these feelings while all these events were taking place, and I had to figure out what they were, kind of post hoc. How are you hoping that people are going to respond to this? Uh, I hope they'll think it's sincere because it is, that was, that was some work to get to, to get to that point. But it was, it was a little tricky because, uh, I think we're always constructing these narratives and then who we are at the center of the narrative is kind of a constructed character too, although we lie to ourselves and say that it isn't. So when I was looking for a cure for this condition, the story was the, the person at the center of that story was someone who was temporarily disabled, but who was going to get well again. Or, you know, before I even became ill, when I moved to Denver, the story there was someone who had a few knocks, but was going to build this big, you know, exciting new life for himself. So the notion of being honest about what I was feeling and who I was, it's tied up in these stories about myself, these narratives about myself. And, uh, that was the tricky part was disentangling myself from these old stories and, and trying not to get too emotionally indulgent about it because, you know, I write about uh, serious episodes of depression, right. In, 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 in the book. And, uh, you can become intoxicated by this idea of yourself as hopeless or this idea of yourself as, uh, um, just, just desperately unlucky. And, uh, I didn't want to fall into that place in the writing either. I didn't want to become too, purely maudlin. Uh, so I just kind of had to keep pushing myself. Sometimes when I, sometimes when, when the writing would become very dark, I would say, but is this really honest? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's terribly dark, right? It's like a Leonard Cohen song or something, is it, but it's, but, but is this really honest about what's going on? And then I would look around and say, because you're writing this in an apartment where you live with someone who, who loves you and, you know, who looks after you. And, you know, you're writing this down the street from a coffee shop where you can go and hang out with your friend who loves you and you can talk about philosophy with her and she'll explain it to you. And, you know, you can drink, you know, the only decaf in town that doesn't taste like decaf. And, you know, surely things can't be that dark. Well, if someone's actually depressed and you're trying to cheer them up this way, it usually doesn't work. But in the writing of a book, you know, you feel like you have to be representative of the, the whole face of the experience. Does that make any sense? Or, yeah. Oh, definitely. No, Definitely. I was going to ask, 
obviously one, I believe it is the duty of the writer or maybe just the nature of the writer to be indulgent. So I feel you there. I am curious, how were you able to pull yourself back when you suddenly were like, this is too much? I have to think about that question before I can answer it. I don't know what the answer is off. uh, Let me think for a second. I'll try to think of an example of a time when I did that. I try, uh, I already quoted Iris Murdoch once, I probably can't do it I again. I could do it all day long. Well, it's the same quote, so it's going to get tedious. I, uh, I, I tried to get out of my own head. I mean, I would, I would reread it and I would say, but this is only, you're only expressing your own feelings. You're only projecting your own feelings onto the situation. What about the people who were there with you? What do we think they're feeling? So you know what that was? Then that was an artistic imperative. Mm-hmm. That was me saying as an artist, you know, uh, as a, as a, you know, if you're a fiction writer, I often will have students come into my class and they'll have these stories about people who have been cruel to them or, you know, mistreated them in mm-hmm. life. And I'll, I will always say to them, you know, uh, the reader has to t- trust you. And the reader is not going to trust you unless they feel like the person telling the story is, is someone with a, a broader view. Mm-hmm than the, the character in the story. So I want to know, I want these people who seem like these cardboard cutouts, who seem like these monsters in your stories, I want them to be, I want them to seem like real people with hopes and fears and with uh, strengths and weaknesses and with beliefs and uh, desires. Uh, and that's not, that doesn't excuse anything they did. Uh, but, you know, it makes them seem more real. And if they're real, they'll be believable. So if I was writing about Mayo Clinic, for example, I would try to turn the doctors into a little bit into characters, you know, uh, what are they, uh, what are the pressures on them? What are they, uh, how how are they different from one another? And, uh, what do I think is going on inside their heads? And even if that didn't make it to the page, it kind of, um, because writing the book is what enabled me to, that's what enabled me to live with the condition. Yeah. It was writing the book. It's pretty cool. You wrote about a book where you wanted to be heard because you have issues hearing. You see, I wish we talked to you before we did the back cover. That would be perfect. <laughs> that would fit in with that tone, with that hopeful tone. I know, right? I just, it just hit me. No, I actually have quite a few people in my life who have issues like that. And I thought it was very fascinating um, how you were able to humanize um individuals in the giant healthcare system that is like a tangled web in this country. Um, especially since insurance doesn't exactly seem to be very kind to people with hearing issues. How is it we're no. able to like get past that? Oh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if we're past Not it. Past it yet. Are we, I don't, I don't think, I don't know that we're past it. I think, you know, I, uh, I mean, the, the hearing aids went on a credit card. Yeah. You know, that's, it's the last, uh, the last 75 years of, uh, easy credit. <laughs> that's the, that's the, you know, that grew up alongside the last 70 years of health insurance. Well, I don't know how people do it. I mean, you know, I, I had a couple of, um, sources of money that weren't just, uh, you know, A, I had access to credit, uh, B, my wife was working. And so if I wasn't able to pick up a bill, she could maybe do it. 
And three, that trip to Mayo Clinic in the center of the book that I write about, my mother paid for that. Mm-hmm. She paid for us to rent that hotel room. She paid for our flights. Uh, what about people that don't have access to those things? You know, people who aren't as privileged as, as I am. I don't, I don't know what they do. I really don't. I think they, I did, maybe I do know what they do. Maybe they, they suffer. <laughs> I would say they do. They just suffer. Um, I, I know two people with uh, Meniere's disease. And uh, my fiancé actually is 75% deaf. Uh, he's good. He's got hearing aid, which I, I'm not going to lie. When we first started dating, I did not know he had hearing issues. And he then was just like, I can't hear that great. I got way too used to him not hearing, and now he's got good hearing aids. So I can't <laughs> talk shit. Even right now, like, he's asleep, but I'm just like, I'm not going to do it too loud. I don't know. <laughs> he could hear shit that he didn't hear before. What kind of hearing aids has he got? I have no idea, but it, again, went on a credit card, but it was like a startup yeah. thing. Um, they're really good, though. I will say they've done a very good job at making them less noticeable these days. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a double-edged sword, though, isn't it? Because people don't realize that you might need them to face you or speak up because you're not wearing this big badge that says, I have hearing problems. And I mean, not that they would anyway. Oh, my fiance, he never talks about it. He's just like, don't tell anybody to speak up. Don't like, I'll just nod. It's why he was so quiet when we first met. <laughs> he just mm. nodded and was like, yeah, we're good. Yeah. But um, do you have that issue with the hearing aids that I hear so many people, God, so much hearing in that sentence, have um, direction? Can you tell when sounds are coming from a specific direction? Or is all no. the sound coming at you at once? It's all coming at me at once. It's undifferentiated. So we're living, for example, we're living in this house. Um, we're temporarily for the next six weeks uh, staying in Connecticut uh, at an old family house uh, while we fix up this condo that we got in Providence. And it's this big open plan house. And so I'll say, uh, so well, so there's a little um, drop off from the upstairs to the downstairs so the sound carries. So you can basically, you can speak at slightly above conversational level at any point in the house and everyone will hear you in every part of the house, right? That's always been the case. I grew up here. It's always been the case. And so I'll say, you know, Elisa, where are you? And she'll say, I'm in here. But I don't know where the fuck here is. Here could be one of seven places. <laughs> and if you don't need hearing aids, if you have sound directionality, you can tell like, oh, she's that's coming from lower right. But I don't know what that means. So, you know, I'll say, where is here? That's one of my big things that I say, where is, where is here? That would be my catchphrase. Oh, yeah, especially, you know, like most people, it's just like, follow the sound of my voice. You, you can't yeah. do that. I mean, it clearly right. affects your perception of things. I mean, I've read like infrasound can cause people to feel more unsettled. There's something called a standing mm-hmm. wave that can like cause you to feel almost like it's at the same frequency as your eyes, which cause like visual disturbances and everything. And, mm. you know, obviously there's ASMA, ASMR, which causes like a relaxing effect. There are just so many ways that sound affect us. Have you noticed since obviously, as opposed to my fiance, who has always been deaf, have you noticed a very big shift in your perception of the world around you? Because you no longer have those abilities to hear. That. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it affects my personality too. I mm-hmm. mean, I don't know if you've noticed it. I mean, I'm wearing headphones as we talk, but 
you know, it makes you a little bit, it, it makes me, I shouldn't speak for everybody. I'm not speaking for every uh, hearing impaired person, but it makes me uh, less fun to hang out with <laughs> because what happens is I don't, I don't hear uh, the little cues that uh, indicate when someone's, for example, about to speak, they might take a little breath in. Uh, if, you know, if you just take that little, like that little breath, that says I'm about to say something mm -hmm. or I don't, I don't hear the little, I think the phrase I use in the book is catches and tells. I don't hear the little murmurs in the, in people's throats when they're reacting to what I'm saying. So it feels like this element of human connection is lost and they probably feel like it's lost too. Cause I'm, cause I'm not making those sounds in response. I mean, I think so much human interaction happens at a, at a, uh, a level below that, below 60 decibels, right? Which is my threshold. Uh, I think the example I use in the book is you're walking alongside someone on the street and you hear that they're breathing a little harder. So you unconsciously slow down a little bit. So they don't, so they're not getting winded. Uh, that's not really possible for me anymore. So I have to try to, um, consciously compensate for that by, I'm probably very annoying. I'm always checking in with people now. I'm always saying, you know, is that okay? Is what I said? Okay. <laughs> Are you doing all right? And, um, you know, that affects how I operate in the world. There's a thing where, because I just recently learned about um, the infrasound issues, obviously you're never going to give up watching TV or movies, correct? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Um, I've just gotten so used to subtitles, like that's just, I'm used to it. I, oh, because your fiance? Yeah, we've been together for eleven yeah. years now. Once you're at that oh, threshold, right. you're just like, I've always watched it <laughs> with subtitles. <laughs> now, if someone watches yeah. a movie without subtitles, I actually now suddenly feel like I can't hear everything that's going on. Oh, um, you're totally. I will be watching something if it's like super clear, like the sound is so big, then I, that I don't need subtitles for whatever reason. I'll notice I'm not using them, and then I'll just like, oh no, I have to turn them on. Like even <laughs> if I don't need them, it's just it's necessary now. I know just what you mean. Exactly. Um, there are those subtle moments, though, in uh, films and everything, like, say, a scary movie, where you don't even realize that they have, like, a little bit of, like, a noise coming at you where it's, like, mm -hmm. preparing you to have, like, the jump or, like, those moments where it's, like, oh, my God, this is so emotional, I'm about to cry. Like, I was just watching Ghost the other day, and this is going to make me seem so amateur for the first time ever. Um, <laughs> I did not know that that was a tear it's, it's been a long, movie. long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And like I was just like crying at the end, mm -hmm. and my fiance was just looking at me. I was like, "It's it's sad. It's not just because he died. Can't you feel the sad?" And then I realized it was all in the music. Right. He doesn't realize the time goes by so slowly, but time can do so much. <laughs> uh, yeah. I. I, I uh, my friend uh, Shanna Compton is a poet. She's a deaf poet. Uh, she, well, I, she probably she doesn't identify as deaf. She's a hearing impaired poet. She has a, a, a book called Creature, Creature Sounds Fade. Uh, she was watching a movie that had creature creature sounds, like cre creatures in the woods howling and rustling and hooting. And then there's that little this little bracketed subtitle came up: Creature Sounds Fade. And she she's written this book of poetry in which she interjects a lot of these little these little notes. You know, feed on snow. Or, um, you know, uh, sad music rises or all these little things that um, uh, color and alter perception. Mm -hmm. I, and I notice that all the time. I'll be watching like an episode of Barry. I just discovered Barry, which I love. 
and there'll be a little note like feet crunching in gravel. And I don't hear it. I wouldn't have known. And I know there's this whole dimension of, of perception that's being lost to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and people always say to me, you know, have you noticed that your other senses are heightened? And I have not. But I notice that I'm, I try to find solu- solutions, ways to, you know, like subtitles, ways to figure out what I'm missing. But I'm always missing something. And then the real trick has to be, just being comfortable living that way. Or if you're not comfortable, being comfortable being uncomfortable. I like that you brought up um, the strange ways that um, they describe, like, say, like, crunching as snow and everything. They do that so much more in movies and TV series these days, whereas before it would just be, like, what they're saying. They never really... I actually love it when they're like slow melodic music playing and it's like whoa getting specific here <laughs> oh they're so wonderful yeah it'll just be like it'll just be like mid dubstep fades uh or you know um you know rancorous chamber music disarticulates itself sometimes they come up with the most descriptive ways i hate it anytime they say moist you know when about to like describe a sound <laughs> or somebody like i hate yeah. that word <laughs> I can't explain why I hate the word <laughs> moist, but I always have. It just sounds wrong. But <laughs> yeah, I, I'm okay with moist. I have other I have other words that I don't like. Ooh, what are they? But moist is. Oh, I don't. will tell you because then you'll start using them. <laughs> uh, I don't like the word. I don't like the word human all that much. Hmm. I don't know why. It's something about the hmm sound. It's like this goofy boring human i don't know there's something about it uh well when you definitely bring it out like that (laughs) (laughs) i love my i love my fellow human beings but something about the word human it's like not articulated enough i don't know so like how do you like describe like just the group of people like do you say just people i call them dudes you say dudes yeah i dig that i call them dudes yeah even if there's just like some trees and rocks it's dudes oh dude trees dude rocks they're your bros. You got to acknowledge them. That's right. But um, obviously, then, not just uh, watching TV and movies, music, obviously, because, you know, the name of the book is Losing Music. What is your solution right. to that? Because, I mean, I imagine, do you wear AirPods or do you have to use, like, another format? What do you use? I have real high-powered headphones, Yeah, yeah. Does it like? I have real high-powered headphones. Like, are they uh, soundproof? No, but they don't have to be. I can't hear what's going on outside. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, without them. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I I don't. You know, people will say like, "Oh, do you have noise? Can- yeah, do you have noise canceling headphones?" And it's like, I have a noise canceling head, man. <laughs> I don't need noise canceling headphones. I I finally got to the point when I could, where I could listen to music with my hearing aids, meaning just like external sound, like I can put on. Uh, my little tribit speaker here and I can listen to just like some, I don't know, Brahms chamber music, whatever in the background while I'm working because I've forgotten what it used to sound like. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you, I feel like this is a good survival strategy for becoming disabled later in life. You have to kind of forget what it was like not to live this way. Because if you remember what it was like, you're always going to be sad <laughs> that you can't hear things that well. But if you forget, then you can accept it as what it is. So uh, 
you know, I wasn't able for the longest time, I, music that I loved, uh, I wouldn't listen to it because I would think it's lost all of its character. It's lost all, you know, because the hearing aids will amplify things, but they don't, um, they, they push all the sounds together. Yeah. So the relationships between sounds aren't as meaningful, aren't as articulated. So, you know, something that I used to love to listen to, uh, a lot beforehand, right? Um, I don't know. Uh, Glenn Gould, Richard and Linda Thompson, uh, Ali Farkatura, I don't know, whatever, whatever I used to listen to. It didn't sound, it just didn't sound nearly as, as complex and the full range of sounds wasn't there. I, I was losing a lot of that dynamism because anything under 60 decibels was lost. Um, it was just this period of mourning. I gave away all my, I see, I grew up with CDs cause I'm, I'm a little older than you are. Uh, I'm late generation X. I gave away all my CDs. I, I, to, not all, I still have some, but I gave away a lot of them. I said, you know, I, I don't need this anymore. I, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to music anymore. And I tried to find substitutes. You know, I, I tried to get really into visual art. I love visual art, right? I love paintings. I love, I'm reading a book now about the body in medieval art. Um, uh, like Christ on the cross wasn't apparently all that iconic before the late middle ages. They would, they, you did other things. There would be uh, Christ would be depicted as an, am, as an animal or something. I had all this uh, anyway. So I tried to make that substitute for music, but it wasn't, it, it isn't, I mean, it's, it's a different thing. It, it doesn't touch the same buttons. I mean, there's been so much work about music and neuroscience and how music just lights up your whole brain. And uh, I wasn't finding other things that were doing this. And what happened is now, uh, I don't remember how good it used to sound. So I can actually discover new music now. If it's not all that dynamic, like I never listened to Brahms Intermezzi before, but I'm listening to it now and they're beautiful. Uh, but I have no idea what they would sound like to someone with healthy ears. Around five years into, um, maybe that's not right, around eight years into the period where I was losing my hearing, I figured out, I don't know why I hadn't thought of it before. I really don't know why it hadn't occurred to me. Uh, just buying really expensive, really strong headphones and just putting them directly on my head and listening to music that way. It, it was only, it took years for me to figure out that I should do this. And uh, I did. And it's much better than hearing aids. I, I really can hear a lot of detail. The only trouble is the hearing aids mask uh, the sounds inside my head. The hearing aids mask the tinnitus, the, the roaring, the hissing, the rumbling that I hear always, all the time. Whereas the headphones don't mute the tinnitus. Mm -hmm. So, so the headphones are a little more emotionally distressing. If the music is soft, you know, if the music is loud, uh, I'm okay. Uh, but if the music is subtle, uh, and, uh, soft, then it's going to happen alongside that roaring in my head, that tinnitus, that, that hissing and, uh, clicking. When did you so just, realize, like, yeah. what was the order in which you realized that you're having the issues? Was it the tinnitus first or the vertigo first? Or did it all just hit you Ver at once? No, it didn't hit me at once. It was vertigo first. Okay. I think in retrospect, I had been losing my hearing, but I didn't realize it. You know, I was living in Cambridge in this house that had been turned into a couple of apartments. And uh, there, there would always be knocks on my door and the girls who lived upstairs would say, they were college kids, would say, uh, your music's too loud. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes they would say, it's good music, but it's just too loud. 
And then all of the, the only part I would hear would be like, oh, they like the music. Oh, great. <laughs> you know, it's good. Uh, I'm glad they like it. Um, or, you know, the, the guy who lived on the other side of the wall for me would say like, you know, you're so loud when you talk on the phone or something. Are you so loud? You know, like, for example, I'm, I'm probably talking more, louder than I need to right now because I'm wearing headphones. I can't hear my own voice. But I think I was losing my hearing, but I think we didn't know this. I think this was an unknown thing. And then one day, uh, Elisa, my, my wife, Elisa, and I had only been going out for about a year, maybe less. And I was helping her make dinner in the kitchen, and I just started, uh, everything spun. And the earliest vertigo attacks when, in Meniere's disease are often the worst. So I thought I was dying. I didn't know what was happening to me. I thought this is it <laughs> because, you know, you're, you're standing there and the next minute you can't see the definition in anything in your visual fields and you feel as though you're falling. And so the first thing that happens, right, is your, uh, your nervous system, um, just kicks on. You, you get this fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. And so your, your heart starts pounding. So then I thought to myself, oh, it's a panic attack is what happens. And so I thought to myself, oh, I'm having a heart attack and dying. <laughs> And then I said, no, I can breathe. I'm not, it's not heart attack. What the fuck is it? <laughs> because I could, you know, I ended up just lying on the couch for several hours and we didn't know what was going on. I said, why can't I stand up? Cause I couldn't stand up. I said, why can't I see your face? Because her face was moving. Her face was blurry. Uh, I was sick. I felt it makes you feel physically sick. A lot of um, people have described it as a mixture of an anxiety attack and seasickness. That's beautiful. Where did you hear that? That's great. My mother who has it. Oh, your mother has it. Your poor mother. So you've, you've, you've been hearing about this your whole life. Uh, actually, it's only started to uh, hit her in the last 10 years. And that's the sad thing is she has five very sarcastic children. So we, we make fun of it at times. So It's okay. That's like okay. Like the tinnitus, occasionally it will be like, do you hear that? This hissing <laughs> sound. And she'll just be like, fuck you. And it's like, okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. I, I, I absolve you of teasing her as, as an official representative, as one of the most prominent people with Meniere's disease after, after April 11th of this year, I absolve you. Uh, I, um, I feel like the best way to get through a lot of this is probably through humor or slang, like, as you said, like just being comfortable finally with it. Oh yeah. Well, you have to be, you know, uh, I sometimes I'll say to Elisa, uh, Oh, I didn't hear you because I, I probably didn't mention this. I have hearing problems. And she'll say, oh, my God. I'll say, I know. I've been keeping – why did I why could I keep, why did I keep the secret from you for so long? See, I'm repeating – it never works when you repeat your jokes to someone else. It's never – the moment is lost, but yes, you're right. Oh, no, seriously. And that's what it is, is that you do it with the people who are closest with you. Uh, it would be totally right. shitty if someone who you didn't know did that to you. Like if I did that to you, you'd be like, I do not like this podcaster anymore. Oh, I just go around telling people you were a monster. I, I probably would just deny, deny, deny. <laughs> they would say, they would say, they would say, have you heard Mallory Sports podcast? It's great. And I would say, you know, I don't go on podcasts run by monsters. And they'd be horrified. <laughs> There's something I don't know. I, I like the idea of being described as a monster, probably just because I am such a tiny human being. <laughs> How tall are you? Five feet tall. Oh, that's pretty small. Oh, yeah, I get that. Yeah. So. I, we we would have such tough trouble walking down the street together because I'm one of the talls. Ooh, what do you count as tall? Uh, six, four. 
Oh, wow. You're actually taller than my fiance. He's 6'3". Oh, wow. Uh, probably, it sounds like he's deafer than I am, though, so he wins that one. Okay, yeah, he wins that one. <laughs> I have a friend who describes it. He says, uh, he said, I'll be having lunch with someone, and I'll stand up, and they'll stand up, and then they'll stand up again. <laughs> and they'll keep standing <laughs> up. Uh, I have a friend who's uh, four foot eleven, Ooh. and uh, and uh, she's great. But she tells me about her experience. So I say to her, like, "Oh, the world must be so easy for you because you're short." And she'll say, "Like, no, it's hard in a different way." As someone who's looking at my cabinets right now, I have to say, "No, it's not easy at all." <laughs> like so, I have to climb yeah. high. Oh God, that's right. You can't to, and to read like for books on shelves because you're a literate person. You'd have to. You have oh, to ask I, I am seriously. I feel so embarrassed when I'm at a bookstore and I see something on a really nice shelf, and I'm just like, <laughs> I need to find an adult, <laughs> even though I am 32 <laughs> years old. And I'll just be like, anyone above five five, please help me get this book. <laughs> and I look a little younger too, so like people will be like, why are you going for this one? I'm just like, I'm 32 years old. I know you don't believe me. <laughs> This book is NC-17. I'm sorry. You need to have an adult. You can't, we're not going to let you have this Anais Nin book. That, yeah, when I was, uh, probably no one knows who Anais Nin is anymore. When I, my, when I talk to my friend who's 4'11", she says, you know, I'll say to her, like, oh, airplanes must be so easy. And she's like, my feet don't reach the ground. I lose feeling in them. Oh, my good God. Finally, someone who relates. <laughs> so I'm here for her. I'll tell her about this podcast. She'll be delighted that I've shared that with everybody. <laughs> That's something that... Uh, who are the great short writers? We don't we don't know writers' heights, do we? We really don't, and that's what I think is funny because you know when you see an author pick, you really only see like you know as I look at yours from like the chest up. That's Almost right. every time someone meets me in real life, it's so awkward that I, like a fan or fellow writer, publisher, whatever, they look yeah. down at me and they're like, "You look." So much smaller than I thought. And it's because I realized <laughs> that all my pictures are angled up. Mm-hmm, and I was like, mm-hmm. oh, didn't realize that. It's making me look yeah. a lot taller. <laughs> I'll just be like, where's the, is there more of you? When will the rest show up? Uh, I know. Yeah. I know. My, yeah, I was, uh, my friend who's uh, pretty short uh, was talking about nostrils one day. She's like, oh, blah, blah, nostrils. And I said, you know, I never think about nostrils ever because I never see them. And she just looked at me like I was, you know, like I was a dog who started talking. And she was just like, she said, nostrils are fascinating. <laughs> oh, we can see them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. So I have a friend who's uh, uh, six foot seven. And oh, wow. uh, yeah. And he's he he's the way I experience. He's like for me, he's like Disney's short person experience or whatever. Uh, because I get to, I get, to, I'm like, oh, this is what it's like. Like when I hug him, I kind of go up on my toes a little bit. <laughs> uh, and when I'm talking to him, I kind of like, I, I find myself, you know, talking bigger and gesturing bigger so that I'll, you know, he'll think I take up more space. Before. Okay. Wait, I'll have to ask this. Do you currently go to concerts? I haven't been to a concert in years. Okay. So when you used to go to concerts, tall people etiquette, what do you what kind of person are you? Are you the person who doesn't care that you're really tall and probably blocking the way of us small people or are you respectful no, to us? I'm a, I'm a sensitive guy. I, I well you know it's it's difficult now cuz 
I don't I don't have a sense of sound in space. So one of the ways you know someone's behind you, if it's a situation where they wouldn't usually be, like you're against the back of the wall or uh, or you're with people who would otherwise be taking up that space, you you know it because you hear them. Mm-hmm. And I don't hear them. So I would have to constantly be checking behind me to see if they were there. But yeah, I was I had good etiquette. I didn't talk to people when they were clearly listening. Uh, I yeah. I would I would try to let people see. Although sometimes there's nothing I can do. Like if it's one of those concerts where everyone has seats and you know, like in a um uh you know, where you have to sit down. Uh if you if you know if there's no other seats, I what can I do, you know? I can sort of try to lean a little bit, but I I ask. I typically ask. I say, uh, can you see all right? And then they lie and say, Oh, it's fine, don't worry. And then I We do lie. Yeah, and then I accept the lie. I say, Oh good, because I worried. <laughs> And we're always too, or, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a really attitude short person out there, so I can't talk on behalf of all of us, but we all secretly are like, well, who invited the tall person? I know. I know. Yeah. I, and I don't think that about the short people, because I don't see them. <laughs> I just... See, now, the issue with concerts is I'm five feet tall, <laughs> my fiance's 6'3", <laughs> so we have to figure out, like... Is he going to be the shitty one, or am I going to actually be able to see the stage? How is it going to go? <laughs> yeah. Should we separate? Who knows? <laughs> How tall is your wife? She's like normal height. She's like, uh, <laughs> I'm, I mean, it exists. There's, there's norms. There's, she's, what is the normal she's like height? The Please tell me. mean height for an American woman. I, I don't say normative, right? I don't, you know. Uh, she's like 5'7", five, 5'6". Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> She's okay. <laughs> See, ironically, I come from a family of all tall people, so I, I don't know what the normal height is. What happened? Did some? Did your mom, was she a smoker? No. Like, seriously, my mom was healthy as can be, you know, aside from fast food. But <laughs> almost all my siblings are close to six feet. <laughs> How do you, I mean, that's, so you've had to deal with some shit in your life. Yeah, I mean, we all have to. So such is life. Like the difference where like, say right now, you know what it's like to hear and now you feel a loss because you have hearing issues. I've never been tall, so I'm not quite sure exactly what I'm missing. That's right. That's right. I mean, it's why it's why my story is so different than, you know, sometimes people will say to me, are you going to learn sign language? Um, And I I am learning sign language, but it's like I'm never going to be fluent in it. Uh, because I didn't, I just wasn't, I wasn't born deaf. Uh, and I didn't lose my hearing before I got to the age where you, I graduate uh, school. That's often like a, that's often like a, a divider where people who lose their hearing before they're finished with, whether it's like college or grad school or whatever, they learn sign language and they sometimes join the, you know, identify with the capital D deaf community. And sometimes they kind of move between the hearing and capital D deaf communities, which can be difficult. But when you, when you're older, like I was, I mean, I was 30. Uh, you just, you just have to try to attach yourself to the hearing world. You know, you've, you already, you already know all your, uh, you already have your closest friends. You'll need some more later, but you know, you, you most, a lot of your personal relationships are in place. A lot of your professional relationships and situations are in place. So you just try to hang on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Find uh, substitutes and bridges. Yeah. Well, you know, when I first lost my hearing, uh, one of my friends said, Oh, you'll have to learn sign language and make all new friends. 
And <laughs> I, I, I sort of was thinking like, did you know, did she never like me? Is that why she said that? <laughs> is she, is she saying like, okay, well, we're done. Good luck. Uh, I don't know. Oh, Pe- whoa. When it comes to tone, do you have issues with that? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you ask my, ask my wife, she'll, you know, she'll always say, I, I think you heard that in a tone that wasn't maybe the tone that it should have been in. I, I wonder maybe about we need her on this podcast. <laughs> She's a writer. Oh, wow. See that? Oh, should have gotten her. You sh- well, it's not too late. I mean, I'm not going to go get her now, but, uh, you know, uh, you can that would be funny if you did. <laughs> She wouldn't like, hurry up, hurry up. Mallory Smart wants you on her podcast. She does not do bullshit. She doesn't do bullshit like hurry up. I have a surprise. That is not her. She, <laughs> she has plans. She, she wouldn't do it. Uh, but yeah, you should come on. You should invite her sometime. Elisa Gabbert is her name. She's uh, a, okay. she's the New York times poetry columnist. Oh, wow. Very yeah. highbrow. She's a big shot. She's do you big- think you're not a big shot? I feel uh, like a therapist now. I well, the answer is no, I don't. But also, my uh, uh, agent—the uh, first conversation I ever had with my agent Noah—I was talking to him on the phone, and he said, "You know, well, there's going to be some obstacles, obviously, in, in, in marketing the book." And I said, uh, "Well, for one, I'm not famous." And he said, "Not yet, buddy." And Ooh. I was just like, "No one had ever said." I just loved that. It was so smooth. <laughs> I was just like, oh, smooth. oh, damn, that's good, man. That is good. All right. I want if you can talk to other people this way on my behalf, then I want you doing this. Uh, that I, is good, agent. Yeah, I was immediately taken by that. Uh, well, that's the thing about being a big shot. Nobody ever knows when they've crossed that line. They, yeah, I definitely wouldn't notice it. They always think they're the underdog because they have their own Such terms. the life of a writer. I mean, because they always are in a sense. I will say, like, I was going to eventually ask if you have any future projects because I think that is the thing of why we never think that we're a big shot because it's always like, it's like an addiction, at least for me, that it's like, all right, that one's over. I'm a failure again. I need yes. to go and work on something else. Absolutely. And, and there's no idea, and we don't, there's so many opportunities for failure with each new project. It's not just one kind of failure. You know, uh, you could um, fail in the conception, you could fail in the execution, you could fail trying to get it published. <laughs> And then once it is published, you could fail to find readers. And then once you find readers, you could fail to endure the test of time. I feel like failure is definitely a part of our lives, more so than other jobs. I think, I don't know, I've never had any of those other jobs. And, you know, we always look at the people who are more successful. We never look at the people who are struggling to get to the place we are. You know, I'm, yeah, even then, though, it's very hard to see the difference because sometimes like the people who are struggling to get where we are, it looks like they're hustling more. <laughs> yeah, I know. looks like they're like we're at a point when you get bigger. Wow, I just said we're I'm not at that point. <laughs> but not a yet. lot of people who are bigger authors, not yet. <laughs> wow, you should be the agent. <laughs> Where like you're working, you know, more slowly, more delicately, you know, you're writing a book that might take years versus people who are churning stuff out like over and over and over because they're just dying to get that like chance. Oh, yeah. That makes you feel like a less capable writer. Yeah. People like, like Joyce Carol Oates, who has a short story in every issue of every quarterly uh, that, you know, I was at James Mer- I spent a month at James Merrill's old house. Uh, do people do people know who James Merrill did people ever know who James Merrill was? Is that is he like a name? Obscure. 
Yeah. I've been wondering if your listeners would use this 20th century poet. He's interesting, an interesting 20th century poet. He's good. He was good. He's a good, good writer. Uh, he's been dead for 20 years and his, his house is a writing residency now. And I was staying there and he has all these old quarterlies. That's actually the real wealth of the place for me. He had these like copies of the uh, Yale Review or the Georgia Review from, you know, from the 60s and the 70s. But he had full runs. He had like a full run of the Hudson Review and you get to read all this stuff. And Joyce Carolus had a short story in every single issue of every one of those magazines. Mm-hmm. Like that's someone who's productive. That's someone who's hustling. And you think of people like Stephen King, too, who's like, I write a thousand words before breakfast. And it's like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> right, yeah, right. I mean, and the thing is... Like, stop making all of us look bad. But he's, but it's like, he's proof of the concept that you can work so hard and never get any better. Ooh, that is true. I mean, I've read some of the later Stephen King books, and they're all right. But they're no, uh, they're no The Shining. Oh, I was just reading one because I found this amazing bookstore in Ohio. It's called Bookloft, and like mm. it is a really cool bookstore where like they literally have like a doorman who like you have to wait outside to get in because like it's that happening, you know. And oh, wow. like they get to capacity. It's pretty cool. I've never been to a bookstore like that, and I was just like I need to buy something, and I was weighing Stephen King and uh oh my god, what was the other book? Oh, uh a Grady Hendrix book. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I'm not. He's a horror writer as well. I've been in a bit of a horror phase lately. Who knows what that means I when love it comes horror. to my personality. Yeah, I have a horror po- podcast. It's not really that great because my co-host really likes to get off the point with me. <laughs> but What's, what, um, what have been the... Oh, let's finish your story, but then I want to have a question. Oh, I, I was going to say, as you were saying with Stephen King, I, I picked his book because I was like, you know, go for the actual, like, really famous person. And his writing now comes off as just very mediocre. Yeah. What is this that I'm reading? There is no complexity to this. Uh, yeah, he's too, maybe he's too open to influence. You know, very maybe- much. He is on Twitter, so. Maybe he sees like, oh, I need, I need to appeal to, I mean, maybe he's doing it to some extent consciously. Like I need to appeal to a new demographic by, you know, like really drawing very straight lines. Like this is the character. Here's their two qualities. Here's their, you know, like maybe he's getting, making himself even cheaper. I mean, the amount of times he said iPhone in that book, (laughs) I was just like, no, this is no shining. (laughs) Which one was it? You know, I am trying to find it. I have a huge bookshelf. That is how forgettable this book was. <laughs> like where I'm just like, I don't even remember. Oh, it's called Later. I <laughs> so read that have one. you even heard of that? I oh, read you did? It. Yeah, I read it. It's all right. But See, you're right. I would say it's, it's all right. Yeah. You're it's not right. bad. <laughs> no. No, it's not that bad. But I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's so, you're right. It's so simple. It's so just simple strokes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, as I, like, finished it, I was like, is that it? Mm-hmm. Here's like, a kid. I felt very yeah. underwhelmed. Yeah. Here's a kid. He's a good kid. Here's the baddie. The baddie is bad because he's bad. Uh-huh. Uh, and his life went okay. Yeah, exactly. Things went sort of all right. It's not even really that scary. I don't know. But So my question is, what if the good – I might be writing – my next project may be – I should never talk about shit like this because then, you know, you're risking the wrath of the gods. But, like – I, I'm interested in writing a ghost story. Could you think of any good ones? 
I would really have to think about it, but I would say that you're looking for elevated horror. That would be what the genre is. It's called elevated horror. Yeah. Okay. And it's known for, you know, having more, um, it's being more complex with some very good undertones and everything. It's good when you're an actual writer. Yeah. Uh, that would be, I guess, what I'm looking for. If you later, maybe later on, if I don't feel, you know, if you don't mind, maybe later on, if you think of any titles, you could let me know. Yeah. I mean, really, it's just the storytelling is so like imbued with metaphor and they're not really obsessed with like schlocky twists or jump scares. It's just mm-hmm. more of a concept. It's going to be more sort of like ethereal. What's the name of this writer, Rachel Eve Moulton? Have you ever read her? Read her? No. No, well, she's got this book, The Insatiable Volt Sisters. I'm thinking about ordering it. It's It sounds like a horror, contemporary literary horror. I noticed it because there's this uh, cool bookstore in Providence where I'm moving uh, called 20 Stories, and they, they like select 20 books to feature every month. And uh, they picked one of they picked my book, so I, obviously they're my you know I'm a big fan of this bookstore now. And uh, this her book was one of the other picks. I don't know if my my opinion of Providence bookstores is is uh, going to be scintillating listening. Oh, that is totally cool. I just talked about my perception of a really happening bookstore in <laughs> Ohio. So we just go on road trips. I don't even know if you count like eight hours as a road trip. But we just drive around and look for, like, cool bookstores or coffee shops that we heard of. That sounds great. I used to do that when I lived in uh, – I did it less in Denver because it's it's kind of harder to get anywhere from Denver. Uh, it's pretty remote. But where are you based usually? I'm uh, usually in Chicago. Oh, right. Okay. So that's much easier, I think. Um, yeah. Midwest, it's really easy to drive around. But it also is very boring in terms of scenery. I You're probably right. I've driven around the Midwest. I've driven around the Midwest. I, maybe we'll endorse that. Although, I don't know, it can get boring in the South. I was living in Denver for a while. We would drive south a lot to like Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Can, it can get boring there, too. Everyone goes on and on about how gorgeous it is. I mean, and it is sometimes, particularly when it's sunset and things like that. It can be great. But you can be driving along those desert roads, and there's just nothing. For There's just a whole lot of nothing. And then you get like a little butte or a little plateau or something, and it just it seems like it's getting closer, and then it just is gone. Just, just never, never shows up, and then you're just driving along this sort of flat expanse again. Uh, I've I've probably done that enough for now. Uh, Do you have any like road trip music that you listen to? No, not anymore. Or I is used that something you can't do anymore? It's something I can't do anymore. If oh. I'm if I'm alone. So the interesting thing about the ear, and this probably isn't something that your boyfriend would be too tuned into, because you know if he's had had. Uh, Definitely his whole life. Uh, mm-hmm. But I find that I can hear the music that I used to know really well. It seems more real to me. Like, I, I, my brain tricks me. It's ingrained me. in your mind. That's right. You know how, like, you have touch memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if I'm listening to, like, uh, I don't know. I, you know, before we did the podcast, I was thinking, like, oh, she might ask you about music. What, what music do you like? And I listen to music all the time. But then you ask me for, like, who? And I was like, oh, I can't think of their names. But like, if I was gonna, <laughs> if I tried to play some something that I was unfamiliar with, I wouldn't hear the subtlety in it, right? But then if I put mm. on like, so a song that I was listening to the other day because it was on my jogging mix, right? It's like Irene Cara's song "Fame," yeah, you know, mm-hmm. famous one. I feel like I can hear every note. 
I feel like I can hear every are, note of it, even though I can't. Are you ever strained to like hear lyrics? Do you like look up lyrics later? I could never hear lyrics. I feel like I wasn't any good at picking lyrics out from uh, noise. I'm not even really that much of a fan of. So I'm going to say something terrible, right? I'm going to this is I'm going to say something scandalous. I'm going to ruin my reputation and this and yours because you hosted this hey, uh, conversation. As Joan Jett says, don't give a damn about your bad reputation. <laughs> so I there is a lot of rock music that I love, right? Jo- I love Joan Jett. Mm-hmm. I was in a I was in a bar one time where uh, my friend put on Joan Jett. It was this bar we didn't know anybody, had a vaguely sinister air. My friend put on Joan Jett. He started dancing to it. All the dudes in the bar, it was like the scene in Airplane where they all start disco dancing. All the dudes in the bar started grooving. We all started shooting pool together. Joan Jett brought us together. It was I, I, it was like watching a magic trick. So I love Joan Jett. I love a lot of rock and roll. I, random rock music song, I don't like it that much because I, I've always had trouble... If, if noise seems to get muddy and noise seems to like, if I, I have trouble picking out the relationships, well, I do now, but I think I always did the relationships between different instruments when it's too loud. Uh, so you would not like punk music. I hate punk music. I, <laughs> I hate it. I really do. I hate it. It's, which is terrible. Cause I know like I'm, I'm not, I'm not like a bigot. Like I know uh, there's really good punk music and you could play me. You could say like, Oh, here's some like Joe's drummer stuff. What to play for oh, actually Joe's drummer is supposed to not be good. Right. Okay. But you could play me. Uh, I don't know who's supposed to be good. <laughs> who's supposed to be good in punk. I don't even know these days. If you go on Spotify and look at punk, like it, it is forever changing. Yeah. But I don't know. Let's go sex pistols Ramones. Okay. Oh, the Ramones. Okay. So there, there's a couple yeah. of Ramones songs that I kind of like, but I like them when they have a tune that I can just, I sound like somebody's grandfather, you know, like I, can I whistle it, but I kind of want to be able to whistle it. But you know, I, the, everyone is a mess of contradictions, right? So on the one hand, that's true. But on the other hand, I also like really a tonal chaos jazz. So like there's this, there's this group, I don't know if they're Dutch or something. They're called Anderskoff accident where they're all playing free jazz at once, but they're not playing the same piece. <laughs> So it's like several different pieces happening at once. And I, I played this to my most like avant pretentious friend. And he was like, this is too much for me. I can't do it. But I like that. But then with rock and roll, you know, sometimes I'll just listen to a jam band going off and the guitar is singing to the bass and the bass is clapping back at the guitar and the drums are t- trickling away. And I hate it. I just cannot handle it. Uh, I often, I always had trouble with lyrics. Like when I was a kid, I was a kid during the grunge era. Cause I'm, I'm late gen X. Right. And, uh, mm. people would be like, Oh, have you listened to, have you listened to like, like zucchini bandit or have you listened to like, you know, jelly hole or like whatever the bands were called. And th- I would be I like to say, I like that your friends have taste, but go on. <laughs> and I would say, I would say, okay, uh, I no, I haven't. And so they'd play me some and I never understand what anybody was saying ever. I would oh, read the lyrics. That was the point. Oh, oh, is that the point? Is that, was that, it was supposed to be like that? Yeah. Oh, son of a bitch. But, but I liked it better when it wasn't. So, okay. So people would play me like Nirvana's, you know, uh, Nevermind um, album. And I was kind of, I was kind of like, Nirvana's just very likable. So I, I, but, but I could never understand the words. And then I listened to the Unplugged, right? Which of course you can understand everything you're singing in Unplugged. I like that better. <laughs> Let's think, how about Patti Smith? She's punkish, but she's very poetic. I love Patti Smith. Okay. okay. I love Patti Smith. Given. But I, I especially love uh, 
um, some of her live recordings are just fabulous. Some of her own songs are better live. Um, what is that? She does a version of Pissing in a River that was on this. It's a, a live version. It was on this two-volume th- uh, Land re- album they did. And uh, it's it's it sounds so good. It's as good as she thinks she is. <laughs> you know, like it's it's she has it. just pissing in a river, watching it. Around. She gets she gets right under she gets right under the words and cups them. And uh, it has this like shamanistic primal like uh, soccer de printemps like uh, this this beautiful. Um, that was the song I was listening to when those girls came downstairs and said. We, you have really good taste in music, but could you not play it so loud? Oh, see, you could have made some really cool friends there. I could have. They, I think they even subscribed to some literary magazines. But oh, I didn't. Wow. They're fans, but I, now. But I didn't talk to them because I thought, like, oh, they're annoyed with me. <laughs> you know? So, but you're right. They're probably listening right now. I know. They're, they're just going to be so psyched. When they're like, oh, my God, he remembers me. That's right. <laughs> like, he remembered when we were annoyed with him. Good. We want him to remember that. We want him to think about that it is when he's dying. Um, I know that I like there's a ton of rock that I love, uh, but I just I, I always had a little trouble. I also, you know, I love classical music. I love a lot of classical music, um, but I'm not. Classical can mean a lot of things. Can you I, go a little bit more? I mean, from the classical era, my friend. <laughs> I mean, as, okay. as bookended as bookended by Hayden and uh, you know uh, Beethoven. Um, but but I also like um, you know yeah well, maybe new music, art music, baroque music, all, all that stuff. Uh, uh, but uh, I don't really like big symphonic music. I don't like symphonies that much because I, I often just get lost. Like the sound all sort of blends together for me. And this is back when I could hear. I would go, you know, um, to the Boston Conservatory. I lived in Boston. I would, I would listen to these symphonies. And I, uh, I often, I just prefer chamber music. I, I prefer something a little simpler uh, that I can. A little more isolated. Yeah, I think the sounds need to be isolated. It's like um, that song, the first song I talk about in my book is Papa Wemba singing uh, uh, Awa Yoki. And the the first time I heard that song, it was the rumba version with the full band, uh, with all these Congolese musicians that he has. And it's great, but I don't, I just didn't, wasn't connecting with it. But then I heard a version where it was just him and a piano. It was the same vocal track. He didn't re-record it. It was the same vocal track, but with a piano behind him, uh, suddenly it just opened it up. And I was able to just like, I was able to feel like I could see all the way around it. I don't know. Does this sound monstrous, what I'm saying? No, not at all. Something I've definitely heard a lot before. But yeah, I was going to ask, obviously, given your taste in music, a lot of people listen to music while they're writing. Does it distract the hell out of you then? Oh, no, I love it. Yeah? Yeah, I do. I love it because it establishes a mood. You know, I don't listen to the kind of music I don't like when I'm writing. <laughs> but uh, so it is. it is harder now that I have lost most of my hearing. So when I could hear, I would listen to, you know, all kinds of things when I wrote, I'd listen to, uh, <laughs> you know what I listened to when I wrote my novel? Cause you read it. So this might be interesting to you. Yeah. I was going to say, what, what were you listening to? Well, I was listening to a lot of Leonard Cohen. Um, I take that, but I was also listening to, I had a friend who's actually someone I dated a little for a little while who gave me a CD that was full of this sort of like, um, 
oh god how would i describe it almost like house music uh it was oh you know it was almost like trip hop it was like it was like uh, this trip hop with this uh this female vocal it was really lovely it was very ethereal sounding though sounded like sounded a little bit like tricky uh and i really liked it and uh she told me much later she said oh that's the model mila jovovich she composes these this like cross between trip hop and house music she composes these things and she doesn't publicize them she just puts the links out somewhere and uh mm-hmm. so it was this so it was like I only learned this after the fact, but it was a bunch of Mila Jovovich tracks, which... Uh, You're going to have to send me some links here. I will. Yeah, sure. Uh, but I would I never... I would never have done that. I would never have like been like, oh, look, you know, uh, I don't know, um, some model's name. Uh, oh, Cindy Crawford released an album. I better pick that up. You know, I would never think that. But uh, but obviously that was bigotry because it turns out she's a good musician. Um, it turns out... Isn't that, isn't that maddening? Isn't that terrible? It turns out she's not just like a model, good-looking person, but also a talented musician. Um, I know it really kills the rest of us, doesn't it? I, what do we? What is the point? You know, if I don't know. So, uh, but it makes you wonder, like, if they did that at first because they didn't know they were hot and they developed a personality, <laughs> and then they were like, uh-huh. "Why did I have to learn all this? I am hot now." That's right. Maybe they weren't hot till later on. Yeah. Yeah, they were. It's like I'm model. Like, why did I bother learning all of this? But also Mila Jovovich is from um, one of those Eastern European countries where, like, probably everybody's really hot. And so yeah, in, her, in her native environment, it's like it's like being a fish in water. It's like being a smurf among the smurfs. Uh, so but when I so when I was writing Losing Music, you know, my my hearing is pretty bad. The first half of the book I wrote uh, not listening to any music at all because I had stopped trying to listen to music. And in fact, I would get annoyed if music would come on because it would sound tinny and echoey and far away and indistinct. And it was all these things. It's like if, it's like if the people that you loved, like your fiance or your friends, suddenly their faces were just always blurry from now on. And mm-hmm. you, you couldn't distinguish them. It would just it'd be so painful. Uh, you would just miss it. You'd be like, why can't I just see you again? You could look at pictures of them. The pictures are blurry. So this is what it was like for me. Uh, but then I discovered I could buy these expensive high powered headphones and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as good as it was, but it would be good enough to do it. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the book, I, I just listened to things that I had loved when I was very young that I hadn't been able to hear for a long time. And now I could hear them. So like I listened to Tom Waits album, blue Valentine a lot. And Mallory approves. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I love that. I would play like that song Kentucky Avenue over and over. Because, you know, I wanted to get myself, I was writing about pretty emotional stuff. So I wanted the music to bring me into an emotional place. He is definitely the right pick. Oh, yeah. He'll make you cry. Yeah. When I was when I was living at the homeless shelter that I write about in the book, I would sometimes play his song uh, On the Nickel, mm-hmm. which is about, about uh, homeless guys in Los Angeles. And... Uh, it was, yeah, it was bringing sand to the desert, but it was like, but it was articulating. There was all this, all this unarticulated kind of amorphous sadness around me at that shelter. And I felt like the song was like giving it a shape and articulating it, maybe making it digestible for me, you know? How long did it take you to write this? Well, uh, like, I, did you like write while you were going through everything or did it just suddenly be like, I have to put it all down? right now 
Well, it's it's not an exaggeration to say that I, I wrote the book kind of instead of, uh, not to bring the energy to a different place, but like I wrote the book kind of like instead of killing myself, <laughs> right? Like I decided I was going to write the book instead. Uh, so writing Sounds a book, a better choice. Thank you. Thank you for saying so. I, I think so too. It, I think so too. It just, it took me a while to get there. Um, I started writing the book maybe in 2015. Well, it's been a long time coming then. Yeah, it was finished a while ago though. It's been in, in a roughly the state that it's in now since about 2019. Mm. Uh, I've, I've, you know, there's been some edits, like the, the first chapter now is, was not the first chapter in the original manuscript, it was the second chapter. But aside from that, aside from some, I don't want to underplay what we did at Milkweed, but, but we were largely finished with edits at Milkweed, you know, a year ago. So mm-hmm. uh, I wasn't writing up to publication or anything. But the earliest parts that I wrote, it was actually, it was my wife, Elisa, who made me do it. She would say, you know, go write a paragraph today about what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And I would, I did that enough that I eventually had an essay and then I had another essay. And then I thought to myself, what if I could turn these into a book? And then I kind of thought, Oh, that would be a reason to live, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, I mean, I'm simplifying it a little bit, uh, because, um, you know, a big part of also deciding to live was, um, realizing that I didn't want to accuse the people I was close to. I didn't want to traumatize and accuse them. And it would be much worse if I, you know, so. You didn't want to pull 13 reasons why. I did not want to give them even one reason. Hey, can I ask you a question about something we mentioned earlier? Yeah. Did you like Columbus, Ohio? Yeah, I did. I've never... I was shocked that I did. Really? What's the vibe there? Well, there's a college campus there, so it definitely has a college feel. But there's, it's very literary. There's actually uh, quite a few coffee shops that are almost devo- devoted to like writing. One's actually called Kerouac Cafe. Oh wow! Bookstores are like everywhere. It's really nice. There's also the Press Two Dollar Radio. There. Oh yeah. Like, I don't know. It's a pretty cultured town, and I was shocked to find it. So yeah. I mean, I I like how I just call the city a town, but you know, it's the Midwest. They're all towns. No, I got to check it out at some point. I, I, if you if you look at my book and you turn to the back of it, there's four blurbs on the back of it, and three of those people live in Columbus, Ohio. I'll give those people a visit, definitely. So I, you know, I think to myself, like, is this just a sample of three random people from Columbus, Ohio, and all of them like my book? So does that mean everyone in Columbus, Ohio, would like my book? Imagine me- <laughs> your book being in the really happening bookstore in Ohio. This is what I this is what I like to imagine. And someone being in line and just, you know, just being like, I'm here for losing music. And it's just like we sold out of losing music this morning. We're shutting down. I know, We're but like get up. out of here. We don't yeah. have any more room. All <laughs> yeah. the books are gone. Exactly. All we have is There's a three book limit. You can't buy any more. <laughs> all we have is mid Stephen King. That's all we have. You gotta get out. <laughs> uh yeah, uh, I'd like to think so. It's like it's like um, I used to uh, I used to share an office with this guy from Taiwan, and uh, I mean he lived in Taiwan. He just came to he just was at he came to Harvard for a uh, couple of months to do a project, but then he was going back to Taiwan. So he's he he, lived, he was a Taiwanese resident. So he uh, he said to me one time uh, after this is a Harvard School of Public Health where we worked. We were sharing an office, and he said, "Do you like wine?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, of course." He said. I can get some of the wine really cheaply in New Hampshire. 
uh, do you want to drink a little bit of it with me here at work when everybody leaves? And I said, sure, okay. So we just stayed in the office and waited until everyone had left. And then he pulled out this bottle of brandy uh, and he just poured me this mug full of it. And we just sat there talking for hours, killing the brandy. And he said, um, we got, you know, we got really deep. He started talking about poetry. And uh, I said, I really liked poetry. And he said, he said, in China, he said, uh, there's three poets who we think of as the three, you know, big poets. And I said, oh, yeah, Li Bai, Du Fu, and Wang Wei. And he's, his eyes got big as saucers. He said, you have to come to Taiwan. He said, you would be so popular there. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I knew these three poets. Um, I think he, I think he was drunk. I don't think I would have been popular. I think, you know, he probably needs more than that. I probably, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know, speaking the language would have made me more popular. Uh, but I think of, I think of Lynn, Ohio as being like that. It's just being like, you know, oh, I have a blurb from Maggie Smith and I have a blurb from Fanifa Birkeep. So it's like, uh, and who, wait, who's the third? I should know this. Oh, right. Alyssa, of course. <laughs> I forget Alyssa. Alyssa Washita, right? And so I feel like if I go there, it's just like, oh, I have a blurb from Alyssa Washita. And people would just be like, oh, you're so popular. You're so, you're, oh, we got to invite you They'd over. be fawning. Yeah, exactly. They'd be like, oh, my God, you, you're John, John Cotter. Oh, my God. Yeah. Every, the only three people in Columbus keep talking about you. Um, they wouldn't even say it. You'd be like, the John Cotter? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The English jockey who has a Wikipedia page. John Cotter. Oh, my God. Do you have that? <laughs> oh, yeah. I've, okay. I have to look that up. I have one person on here, Bobby Miller, and he has a Wikipedia page. Um, there's a baseball player <laughs> named Bobby Miller that keeps taking over his Google search. <laughs> Jesus. Do you have other, are there yes. other Mallory Smarts who dog you and haunt you? You know, I just got one of them off, you know, that sounds wrong saying it that way, but I got her off the main page. So I just have one more <laughs> Mallory Smart to deal with. Okay. I'm about to overtake that bitch. So <laughs> I'm competitive if you can't tell. No, it's good work. I'm rooting for you. I'm not working for, I'm not rooting for them. The I'm strange against, thing uh, about the Mallory Smarts of this world, or at least the ones who are online, we're all in the creative field. It's really weird. Oh, that's bad for you. Like, I know, one's like a graphic designer, one's an actress, one's a painter, and it's like, bitches, get out of my way. Mm. Oh, that is miserable. I know. Although I'd like to say the actress doesn't have a chance, though, because, I mean, her name just has to appear, like, in movies that she's in, and if you're not getting <laughs> a lot of roles, then you're not dominating that list. Oh, excellent. excellent. I will say... I take up most of the list, so I think most of those Mallory's hate me. <laughs> like, God damn it, that writer again? Somebody I, shut her up. <laughs> well, that's the nice thing about a writer. You keep publishing things. You just, it's another opportunity to... Uh, I just, I'm, You know who I'm rooting for in that situation? I'm rooting for Mallory Smart. I'm standing here with my Mallory Smart pennant, and then whoever wins, I really win. Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, I've got an archaeologist whose books show up under my, under my thing. And, uh, he, he was like an archaeologist. He was like a British archaeologist. Uh, and I'm, I'm very honored by that. I would love it if someone thought I was a British archaeologist to me, this is great. Uh, but then I also have, there's a, who's named John Cotter with a, uh, with a K. Um, and, uh, Sorry, my phone just rang deafeningly in my in my headphones. Uh, so there's a business guy named John Cotter with a K, and his books will 
you know, sometimes Amazon will like push him. So if someone types like losing music by John Cutter, it's, uh, you know, five minutes to yes or whatever by John Cutter with a K. <laughs> I will say, as I look you up on Google right now, you're pretty heavily on here. Uh, I, I, I'm 99%. Right. It's all you. Yeah. Life goal unlocked. Well, you can never tell because Google knows you're you. Yeah, but they don't know that I know you. Don't they? Oh, wow. If we're going to get into that. <laughs> you don't think they know that? that rabbit hole. <laughs> you don't think they know that? I think they know I just opened a stick of gum. I think they know a lot. <laughs> I say that as I have my webcam covered. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. I should do that, too. I used to, I used to do that. I need to do that. I have... Um, black tape over my one uh, MacBook Air and I have this cool light thing that goes above my computer that mm. attaches. I, I just always attach it right where the webcam would be. <laughs> this is brilliant. I have. A, I was yeah. teaching uh, my writing class and my student, Shani, um, she, uh, she was a soldier in the Israeli military for a while and she, uh, I don't know, I think she's done some work, some like contract work for them too. And she was writing about this thing called Pegasus software in one of her stories. And I was like, what is that? And she just looked at me like, you don't know what that is. And she's like, it knows what you are. It knows what you are. <laughs> and it was terrifying to me. She gave me this look like there was someone creeping up behind me and that she could see them on the screen, but I couldn't. Uh, it's, I guess it's a spyware and it like escaped and now it's in everything. <laughs> And it's, it's not the idea of spyware yeah. escaping makes me think of a sci-fi movie now. <laughs> what else? What else can I tell you about losing music or music or anything? Well, I was actually just going to ask: Is there anything else you want to let us know about you before we wrap up? Losing music will be available wherever you buy books on April 11th. It's probably already available now. Uh, my publisher. You know, people started getting their orders and, you know, not published yet. And I said, is this a problem? And they said, well, we don't enforce embargo. You know, so some presses, I guess, will enforce an embargo, uh, like the big presses, because they can threaten bookstores. Um, but I used to work at Barnes & Noble, like the new Stephen King or whatever would come in. And it would say August 1st embargo. And I would say, well, can I just have one? And, you know, my managers were always very strict. They would always say, no, the, the big presses will know. They have... They're like Pegasus spyware or whatever. They'll know. You, you can't. But I guess Milkweed doesn't, they don't, it doesn't mean, it doesn't matter. So you probably get it now. Let's see if I'm on Amazon, I can get it by tomorrow. Yeah, you probably can. You could also, if you live near an independent bookstore, you could have it tomorrow as well. Uh, so Ooh. I would recommend people buy losing music from an independent bookstore uh, and support local businesses, yes. keep money in the community, uh, support literary culture. Uh, and if you can't get it from an independent bookstore, it's also available from the Target website. Uh, and it's available from Amazon, all those places. Uh, so I'm scheduled to appear in Colorado at Lighthouse Writers Workshop on April 28th in conversation with Mike Henry. There's a chance we'll have to postpone that because I uh, injured myself in a fall recently and we need to see what the doctors say. Uh, so we don't know. I will certainly be appearing uh, at Newtonville Books uh, in Newton, Massachusetts with Teju Cole on May 12th, which is a big honor for me. I'll be appearing uh, over Instagram for Thank You Books for a virtual reading and conversation with Kristen Iskandrian on May 18th, and then uh, Prairie Lights Bookstore on June 15th uh, in conversation with my friend Mike McGinnis. 
And I would obviously love to see anybody on any of those uh, occasions. And uh, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is cracking. I just turned 14. Uh, the audiobook for Losing Music with this wonderful cracking voice uh, is, is going to be available on April 11th. You're having a really good run. I'm having a minute, which is nice. You are. Which is nice. I've always wanted one. So it's I, now. You're big you know, time now. <laughs> yes, I'm big time now. That's right. Uh, it's going to be so fleeting. <laughs> it's going to be, I'll be, I'll just be washed up with just a bottle of gin, just telling my story to a garbage can uh, any minute. So I have to. Don't worry. You'll feel like a failure in a month. I've, I already feel like a failure. <laughs> <laughs> I already feel like a failure. Um, but thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me come on. I really enjoyed talking to you. All right. That was John Cotter, author of Losing Music. You can keep up with his work via his Twitter at Small Lights or at johncotter.net. Snag a copy of Losing Music Now from your local indie bookstore or whoever you buy books from online. We prefer supporting the little guys, but if Jeff Bezos is what you have to go with, we won't judge you. As always, everything will be spelled out in the show notes and links will be shared. Now, let me get you out of here with some quick requests. Please check out our Twitter at PodHealing and take a look at our website, textualpodcast.com. Show us some love by going on to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review or subscribe to us on Spotify. We'll be back next Saturday with Sean McCallum to do a special road trip edition of Textual Healing, which I think you'll enjoy just as much as I did. This is Mallory Smart. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for listening to the show.